it's a delight to be with you tonight, and uh, I thank you for being here. And I, I also thank you for um, the events of this morning and for uh, the blessing that you all have been to our family. And we thank God for you and um, just want to express our gratitude for the way in which you've blessed us so. Let me invite you to turn with me to Second uh, John, to John's second epistle, where we will continue our study in the letters of John. And uh, while you're finding your place, as always, I'll say a few words of introduction. John's letters are three, and they may have been sent together. We, we can't know that for sure, but it's a reasonable assumption, as Robert Yarborough has pointed out. And in any case, we can see plainly enough that the second and third epistles of John concern the same subject matter. Once I read them, for those of you who've been with us for the past several weeks, you'll recognize the same content, the same ideas are infused throughout this letter. Now, what we could say then is that these two letters that we're going to come to this week and next week are concerning real-world problems, or put it another way, they give real-world practical applications for the theological truth that John has been teaching us from his first epistle in the, uh, in the last several weeks together. And uh, you could look at it as a, a practical application, particularly in the context of these early churches who received these letters. They are deeply theological, but they're also intensely practical. And I think that we'll find today that they're going to be very practical in our lives as well. Now, specifically, as we look to this second epistle, we're going to find that John is giving two primary exhortations. He's giving two primary messages. The first one is that we must supplement our faith with love. We must supplement our faith with love. And the second message that we're going to see is that we must not participate in the work of false teachers. We must not participate in their work. So we have an encouragement, an exhortation, and we have a warning in this letter. Through both messages, John will show us as readers how we can live and walk in truth and love in the midst of the complex realities we face in a fallen world. And so if you've found your place then in 2 John, would you follow along with me as I read the letter? Beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to the end. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would send your spirit to cause us to be people who receive your word as hearers and doers of it. And particularly as we reflect on what we've read, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who walks in truth and in love. May we be such a people as this who have such a firm commitment to the truth of the love that you have shown us, that we live with love towards others, 
even when it means making hard decisions towards the world around us. Lord, give us the courage to do this as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our overall exposition, we'll examine the contents of this letter under three headings. The inseparability of truth and love, the need for truth and love, and a specific expression of truth and love. The inseparability of truth and love, the need for truth and love, and a specific expression of truth and love. But first, let me give you some preliminary remarks to give you some context. You see, this letter is quite different than what we read in 1 John, and you can see that right from the beginning in terms of the greeting. In fact, some have suggested that 1 John was more of a sermon manuscript that was delivered to the churches that, to whom John wrote, to which John wrote, and it was to be read as a sermon of sorts, whereas these are clearly letters of a personal nature. And so John writes, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. This is a typical and customary greeting that we see in all of the letters of the New Testament because this is the way in which people would write letters in the ancient Greco-Roman world. They would identify themselves as the sender at the beginning, not at the end like we do, and they would identify the addressee, and they would make some remarks about the purpose for the sending and, and what it is, that, some kind of greeting that uh, in, in ter- when they're sending a letter to other Christians, something like grace and peace or grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father. And you can see that in all of Paul's letters, and you can see that in Second John and Third John as well as in Peter's letters and so on. First John does not have that kind of beginning And so some have concluded it wasn't strictly speaking a letter. It was more of a sermon sent to be read. Well, whether that's the case or not, we do see that this has a more personal quality to it in some sense, though 1 John was certainly very personal. We remember how John addressed uh, his readers as dear children so often and beloved. Nevertheless, this is something that's directed to particular individuals. Now, We're always tempted when we read something like this to rush on beyond it, to rush to the meat of the letter, rush past the uh, introductory greeting. And yet there's enough here that is both profound and puzzling to sustain our interest before we continue. And we ought to. We need to stop and ponder the text. Because if we're going to interpret letters rightly, we need to consider the greeting and how that helps us to interpret the text. John, note that he, John identifies himself not as the apostle, but as the elder. He's not elevating himself over them by calling himself the elder. He's actually expressing a quality of humility. He could have introduced himself as an apostle, and he will, in Third John, refer to himself as an apostle in order to, uh, as a reference to his apostolic authority, where it becomes necessary in the course of the letter. But here he mer- merely refers to himself as the elder as a a way of denoting his uh, familial quality with these people, his familial relationship with them, and his humility. Why does he do this? Well, let me remind you of something he wrote in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, when he explained his purpose for all that he was writing, he said, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This passage that I've read from the beginning of 1 John mirrors our text this morning because it reflects John's desire for fellowship. He desires to invite these Christians into fellowship with him and into fellowship with the triune God. He is not pushing them away. He is not pushing them down. He is not exalting himself over them. He is rather humbly inviting them into a fellowship with him. And that kind of quality is reflected in the way in which he introduces himself as the elder. We can see the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 5, in the text that we read this morning together, when, we spoke of, uh, when Peter spoke to the elders and referred to himself as a fellow elder, not as an apostle who was over them, but as a fellow elder, one just like them. We see the humility, therefore, of John. And that expresses something of his love, something about which he'll speak at length in this letter. 
We also see that he addresses this letter to someone or some group that he calls the elect lady. Let me explain what he might mean by this. There are a number of views. Many of them are quite speculative, and we don't need to spend much time with those. But I want to put two different views, two different interpretations of this text before you. Who is the elect lady? Well, the obvious, the obvious possibility is to say that he's addressing some noble woman in this particular congregation and her children, who, uh, some woman who had some kind of means and was able to uh, show hospitality to others and invite traveling teachers and missionaries into her home and let them have a place to reside and a place where they could be fed while they were doing ministry. That's a natural way to read that text. Another one, another possibility, and this in fact is the most commonly held interpretation by modern interpreters, is that this is actually a reference to a congregation. When he says, the elect lady, he's speaking of a local church, they would argue. And the reason they say this, the, the, the evidence they give for this, are, there are several points. One is that John will shift from, first, uh, from um, first, uh, second person singular pronouns to second person plural pronouns in verse 6. You can't see this in English. Because we say, when we're talking to many people, y'all, or you guys here in the Midwest, but you don't write that. You just write you. But it's very clear in verse 6. When you read, you have heard, in verse 6, you could read that as, y'all have heard, or you guys have heard. And from then on in John's letter, he's going to refer to you in the second person plural. But of course, that could simply be explained by the fact that he's speaking to the lady and her children. So I don't consider that to be decisive, though it does uh, support the view that this is a local congregation that he's addressing. Another reason, maybe more compelling, is that uh, John uses the same language later in verse 13, saying, the children of your elect sister greet you. And when we recall that in 1 John, he regularly referred to Christians as his beloved children, even though, physically speaking, they weren't his children, but in the faith they were his children. John has this manner of speaking. And so in that sense, it could make sense that this is one church sending a letter to another church. And we see that in Scripture, frequently the people of God are referred to in individual feminine terms. That is, the church of God is referred to as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.32 speaks to that, as well as Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. And all of these warrant the possibility that this could be a reference to a local church. Even in the Greco-Roman world, they would describe social organizations as ladies. Having said this, I don't think that evidence is definitive. In other words, I don't think it's enough for us to know for certain which is true. The original recipients of this letter, they knew for certain. But we are left with both possibilities and we, we can't be sure. What I want you to understand is this, is both possibility, neither impossibility dramatically alters the way we interpret the text. So we don't need to make a big deal out of it. But I am going to approach the text as though he's writing to an individual lady and her children because I think that that makes good sense of the text, even though I know that most modern scholars don't approach the text that way. The only main difference, I would suggest, is going to be seen in verse 10. And even there, we see that one thing may be an application that's appropriate to the text and another an interpretation. And depending on how we interpret the elect lady, we simply swap the interpretation with the application. You'll see that when we come to verse 10. In any case, John is addressing perhaps a local church. At least he's addressing many Christians. Uh, possibly just a woman and her children who are you know, presumably adult children, and they play a major role in showing hospitality to traveling uh, missionaries, traveling ministers. So that's kind of, that, that's the context of this letter. That's who John is writing to. Now, having made those preliminary marks, I want to focus more on the uh, content of what John is saying to them. I want you to see particularly in the greeting, and as we go through this letter, the way in which John brings together love and truth. The way in which love and truth are seen to be inseparable in this letter. 
The first point that we're going to see is that love and truth are inseparably connected. Because love without truth is impossible. For the truth of which John speaks concerns God's demonstrated love for us. In the same way, truth without love is incomplete. For the truth concerning God's love for us calls for a loving response from us. Love and truth are neither strangers nor enemies. They are intimate friends that must not be separated in the Christian's life or in our minds. And you can see that right from John's greeting. Look at what he writes. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in what? In truth. John's love for these Christians is rooted in the truth that they mutually confess, the the truth that they have mutually believed concerning Jesus Christ, concerning his person and work, concerning God's great love for us. And this shared confession is what motivates and urges his love. And not just John's love, John will say, not only I, but also all who know the truth. Those who have come to know the truth also love those who know the truth. We remember this is a major emphasis in John's first letter. Love and truth are inseparable in the Christian's life. Why? Because of what the truth is for the Christian. He says that the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. We must recognize that John speaks of truth not merely as facts to be believed, but something that is, uh, is bound up in the person and work of Christ. Truth is an intensely personal reality for the Christian. Because at the end of the day, truth is from God. Truth concerns God, his person, and his work, and who he is, and what he has revealed to us. And so we can speak of Christ as the one who is the truth. And we can speak of the Spirit of God as the one who is the truth as well. We can speak of God himself, the true God, the one who is true, as truth itself. That's the way that John speaks about God. And so he can speak about truth abiding in us and being with us, not just now in the present, but forever. We don't think like Pilate did, who sarcastically asked Jesus, what is truth, when he held Jesus on trial. Pilate would fit in really well in our day and age. He'd fit in just wonderfully in our culture. In a culture that says there's no such thing as objective truth. There's no such thing as a fixed reality that is true. And yet, we as Christians cannot think this way. Because Jesus came to bear witness concerning the truth. That's what he said to Pilate. I came to bear witness to the truth. And that's why Pilate said to him, what is truth? As if to say, how can you know? Who are you to declare what is true and what is not? Pilate didn't recognize Jesus for who he is. As the one who was sent by the Father, as the perfect image of the one true God. The truth we have seen is something that is objective and it's fixed because it's rooted in the one who knows all things. You see, the reason why so many in our day and age wonder whether it's even possible for truth to be an objective reality is at least in part Because all of us have limited knowledge. Nobody here can possibly even uh, know anything close to all things. We can't even scrape the surface of all there is to know. And so, because we cannot put everything in complete context, we seem to think in our culture that truth is elusive. It's something that we cannot grasp. But God's knowledge is infinite. His power is without limit. Therefore, he knows what is true and what is not. And because he is faithful and cannot lie, his revelation necessarily accords perfectly with truth. Even if he has not made all things known to us, how could we comprehend all of it? We can know that his revelation to us is sure and true. And supremely, that revelation comes to us through Christ. And we understand it through the Spirit's work in our hearts. We have seen both of these ideas in John's earlier writings. In John 14, 6, for instance, you read that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can see that and say that is a fixed, objective truth. It's not relative. 
doesn't depend on one person's perspective because it comes from the God who knows all things. Likewise, John described the Spirit of God as the Spirit of truth and plainly stated that he is the truth in 1 John 4, 6 and 5, 6. And because the revelation we've received by God is impressed upon our hearts by this Spirit who is truth, we can know that it is sure. To put it simply, I am saying that John understands truth comprehensively. It is bound up in the revelation of God through Christ, a revelation that is mediated by the Holy Spirit. It is not so much concerned with every fact that can be known in this world, but with those facts that are of supreme and lasting worth, those facts which concern the one from whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, our triune Lord. It concerns the right knowledge of him, knowledge which is not only intellectual, but also relational. And it concerns what he has done for us and what he does in us and through us. This is why John can speak of truth as something we know through revelation and as someone who abides in us and with us forever. So the nature of the Christian life is that we have come to know the one who is faithful and true through his son, Jesus Christ, because we have come to know the truth of God's great love for us as he has demonstrated it by sending his son to die for us. As a consequence of this truth, we have received the benefits of salvation. Benefits that are aptly summarized in three little words, grace, mercy, and peace. That John sends with this letter. Grace, we have freely received God's favor, though we have done nothing to deserve it. Mercy, we have been forgiven of our sins because of Christ's atoning work, though we deserve God's judgment. Peace, though we once were enemies with God. He has now reconciled us to himself as friends and more than friends, as sons, and this through the blood of his cross. We have grace and mercy and peace from God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is rooted in the truth of God's great love for us. And the clearest way in which we can display our love for others is by declaring that truth to them so that they might also receive it with faith and enjoy the benefits of this great salvation and for those who have received it by encouraging them with these same truths of God's great love for us so free and undeserved how can we speak of our faith without speaking of love how can we speak of our faith without speaking of truth we cannot there is no truth if there is not love there is no love if there is not truth It follows from this that we need to supplement our faith with love. As Christians, there needs to be both truth and love. If truth and love are inseparable as divine attributes, if they are inseparable in God's self-revelation, they ought to be equally present in our lives as his disciples. This is the point which John would make in verses 4 through 6. He calls the elect lady and her children to supplement their faith with love. So John begins this way. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Here his words recall something we read in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John 3.23, we read these words, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. You hear that? The commandment is what? That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. That first half of that, faith in Christ, that is what it means to walk in the truth. But it's only one side of this coin. There are two great commandments in God's law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if I had time, I would show you that those commandments in the Old Testament are aptly summarized by these in 1 John, that we should believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ, that we should love one another. They merely clarify in a new covenant context what it means to fulfill these two great commandments. For we love our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength when we believe in and trust in. In his son Jesus Christ. 
And we love our neighbor as we love our enemies. And as we love one another. That's how we love neighbor. That's how we love God in this present context. That's how we fulfill God's law. And so you can see why it's so important that we supplement truth with love. And that's what John is saying to these Christians here. They are walking in the truth, but he wants them to make sure that they take it a step further. And that's what we see then in verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Here, the words of 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 and following, echo in our ears. We remember that he said this, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here, to walk in darkness is to reject the truth. To walk in light is to walk in the truth. And there in 1 John 2, what John was saying is that the one who lives in light of the truth that God has shown us will live with love toward others, will demonstrate his love toward others. The one who rejects this is seen, as, it's evident in the fact that that person does not love his brother. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's one that was passed from our Lord to his disciples. It's one that they passed down from the very beginning. It's something in which the Christian church has endured for centuries. And we must continue to endure in this commandment that we love one another. We must supplement our faith with love. John's going to give us a definition that helps us to understand what love is. He says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Notice a couple things about this, because it does seem a little bit circular at first. John is telling us that we demonstrate our love for one another when we live according to Christ's word. Notice the plural there, commandments, when we walk according to his commandments. And then he moves to a singular. This is the commandment. That is that we should walk according to his commandments, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Part of the expression of faith in Christ is doing what Christ has taught us to do. We have just finished a study in Luke's gospel in the past few weeks of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. In Luke chapter 6. And there in Luke chapter 6, Jesus has taught us what it looks like to live our life with faith in Him. The concluding words of that sermon encouraged us to be like a wise man who built his house on a solid foundation so that it was able to withstand the flood. And what is the foundation? It is Christ Jesus Himself. It is Him and it is His words. The one who hears His words and the one who does His words, He is like that man who founds His house on a solid foundation. And what had Jesus just been teaching us and those original hearers as He spoke in that great sermon? How we can love our enemies, how we can love one another, how we can extend grace to one another, infused through all of His commandments, is love. There is no separation between love and obedience to Christ. There is no, uh, no way, no situation where we are forced to choose between loving someone and obeying our Lord. The commandments that he has given us are meant to teach us how it is that we might love one another. And I say that, it's so important to hear that, because that's not what our world will tell us. Our world will tell us again and again that the things that we read in God's holy word are unloving and hateful and bigoted. That's what they will say. They will speak to us as if we have no concept, no idea what it means to love. We ought not to be 
cowed by this. We ought not to be afraid when they do this. They will do this. But we need and ought to take assurance from the fact that Christ has shown us that indeed this is what constitutes love. No one shows us love so clearly as our Lord who gave himself for us, who demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Who is more qualified than him to speak on what love is? And he tells us and instructs us through his disciple John that to love one another is to keep Christ's commandments. So let us be a people who, albeit imperfectly and with great struggles, let us be a people who keep the commandments of our Lord and who make disciples by teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. Well, I've also said that we have not only the inseparability of truth and love, and not only the necessity of truth and love, but here in this letter we have before us an expression of faith and love. Look there in verse 7. John writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. In a sense, it seems like John has suddenly shifted perspective. He has shifted to a new subject matter. But really, this fits in perfectly with his overall theme of truth and love. Because what John is doing here is expressing his own love for these Christians. He is expressing, expressing his love in his zeal to guard them from those who would destroy their souls. And so he's going to give instructions about how to respond to this reality that many deceivers have gone out into the world, people who do not confess the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Now, here we are again reminded of things that we've read in 1 John. You see, in 1 John 1, 2, 18 through 25, John warned his readers that many antichrists have gone out into the world, and he further defined them as those who deny that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Let me read that text for you, just simply to remind you of it. John wrote in 1 John 2, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. This is the kind of person that John is writing about. The kind of deceivers who have gone out into the world and had all sorts of denials. Denials that would merely multiply in the years to come. And we've spoken about those in weeks past. But all of those Denials shared certain things in common. They denied Jesus Christ in some particular way. They denied his deity or they denied his humanity. We confess as Christians that Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man. But they would put a line through fully man and probably through fully before the word God. They would deny that he was fully God or that he was fully man or both altogether. And similarly, there were many who would come and many who were already present who would deny his work. That is, the atoning work that he performed for our sake on the cross. John declared he is the propitiation for our sin. And they would say, that's not really true. This was the kind of denial that they were spreading, that they were purveying. And John wants these Christians to watch out. He doesn't say watch out for them. He says, watch out for yourself. Watch yourselves in verse 8, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
John and the other disciples, the other apostles, had labored among these Christians. Let me remind you, very likely John is writing to people in and around Ephesus. We heard preached this morning about the kind of labor that Paul did for three years, night and day, among the people of Ephesus and the warnings he gave them about those who would arise in years to come. And those warnings came to fruition. John's testimony is evidence to that fact. And John is warning them again about them, and speaking about the way in which the disciples of our Lord, the way in which the apostles labored for them. Again, we hear ringing in our ears words we heard on Easter Sunday when we read and heard from 1 Corinthians 15, how Paul spoke to the Corinthians about the possibility that his work might be in vain among them if they were to fall away from the true faith. Paul didn't want that for them in Corinth. John doesn't want this for the Christians here. He wants them to persevere. He doesn't want his labor to be in vain, not because he's concerned about his resume, but he's concerned for their souls because of his great love for these Christians. He wants them to gain that full reward. And we need to see here, there's no in-between. You don't get a partial reward if you hold partially to the teaching of Christ. There's a full reward and there's no reward. There's true faith and there's no faith. And there's not an in-between. And so John warns them, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Here's how we can win it. Here's how we can lose it. To lose it is to go on ahead. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That phrase, he does not have God, is shorthand for all of the saving benefits that Christ communicates to us, that Christ has earned for us, summarized in grace, mercy, and peace. The one who has God has these. But the one who goes on ahead of the teaching of Christ does not have these. What does it mean to go on ahead of the teaching of Christ? Let me illustrate it in historical examples. Soon after John's day, the Gnostics would arise, and they would claim that they had a special knowledge, that they had acquired some kind of special revelation. They were going on ahead, and their pitch to people, their sales pitch, was that we have something further. We can take you further upward and further inward into the spiritual life. Come and follow us. That Christianity stuff that was elementary. But we've got that special and hidden knowledge. And many fell away and followed them. Some centuries later, a man named Muhammad would come along saying he had a special revelation from God. He had received a book that he had written, communicated to him from God. And it was something to lead people further onward further inward. So let's go on ahead to something greater, something better. Many years later, the founder of the Mormon church would make the same claims, and these kinds of things happened again and again throughout history. They're happening even today. There is nothing further on, there is nothing further inward than Christ and the fullness of revelation that God has made for us in Christ. The one who goes on and does not remain in the teaching of Christ, doesn't have God. It's the one who remains and abides in the teaching. He is the one who has both Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring that teaching, the one that we've received from the beginning, the one that has been passed down, the one that we have in God's holy word, if someone comes bringing that teaching, what are we to do? Shut the door. Do not receive him. Don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. I mentioned earlier that how we interpret the greeting will affect how we interpret this text, though not in a substantial way, in a way where we simply reverse interpretation and application. You see, if John is addressing a local church, then to receive someone into the house would be to let a false teacher get the microphone and have an audience with our congregation. We must not let that happen. Even if this is addressed to an individual, that's an appropriate and right application of this text. We must not give voice to people who would promote a false gospel, the people who would deny the word of our Lord. 
If, as I've suggested, and as I'm approaching this text, he is writing to an individual family, and I think this is also an appropriate application in either case, we're not to extend hospitality to those people who would be doing those kinds of works. Now, let me be clear and precise on what I mean here. We need to understand how people understood hospitality in the ancient Greco-Roman world. If a traveler was going from town to town in the ancient Roman world, there weren't many hotels, and inns were a disreputable place. You didn't want to stay in an inn. A person traveling from town to town was dependent upon the hospitality of strangers. When he came into a town, he hoped that some stranger might receive him as a guest and give him a, whole, a place to stay, feed him from his table, and that person would then move from being a stranger to a friend. That is, a stra- from a stranger, to, he would no longer be a stranger anymore. Now he would be a guest. And what would happen in that transaction is his host would lend some of his own credibility within that community to the stranger. It's not like today if you were to go and check into the Hilton. They don't do a background check to make sure that you can stay at their hotel. But in the ancient world, people in your, in your community would look and say, oh, this guy came into town and he's staying with Joe over there. Well, let's see about this guy and how, what do we think about this guy. And if that guy's an honorable person, say, well, that reflects well upon Joe. But if that person is a dishonorable person, it reflects poorly upon Joe. Or reverse it the other way. If Joe is an honorable person, his guest would receive some sense of honor because the assumption would be, well, if Joe's going to receive him into his house, that must be a credible guy. Must be a good guy. And if you have false teachers traveling around who are dependent upon the hospitality of strangers, and people in the early church say, sure, I'll give you a room, I'll give you a bed, I'll give you a meal, they would be lending their credibility as Christians, as leaders perhaps in the early church, to that false teacher. And unwittingly, they would be participating in his work. They would be supporting his work. In the same way, this is why John says that you're not even to greet them. It's not like he's saying, don't say hello if you're passing him on the street. As Colin Cruz explains, because Christian greetings generally carried a recognition of the true Christian standing of those greeted and invoked a blessing upon them, just like we've seen in this letter, the elder knew that it was not possible for his readers to greet the secessionist, that is the false teacher, without the greeting implying a recognition of the secessionists, Christian standing, thus identifying themselves with their wicked work. Simply by communicating that kind of greeting in that ancient context, they were lending credibility to that person. And John wanted them to be careful. This is an expression of his love. He does not want them to become unwitting participants of the work carried out by these deceivers of their wicked works. Because that in itself would be unloving. Think about what these deceivers are doing. They're going around spreading a gospel that will lead to eternal spiritual ruin for those who receive it. They're essentially going around as people who would murder their hearers. Murder them forever. As people who would Send their hearers, their followers, to everlasting judgment. What more unloving thing can we possibly imagine? John says, have nothing to do with those people. Do not support their work in any way. Do not receive them into your home. Do not receive them into your church. Do not give them an audience. Do not give them a voice. Do not in any way lend your credibility to them. It plays out differently in our own context. For instance, some people we know serve as missionaries in a Muslim context. And in their evangelistic efforts, they will make an effort to gain access to the homes of others, and they will receive others into their homes, people who are not Christians. It's not that they're disobeying this command. They're doing this in order to gain access for the gospel. And the cultural context is different. They're not communicating their credibility to those people. But there are some who embrace a strategy whereby they would encourage people to convert to Christianity, but on the exterior, continue worshiping as a Muslim. Go to mosque and just in your mind, be a Christian at the mosque. That doesn't work. That's a mingling of two things that cannot work. 
And that is an act that is unloving. That latter act would be an example of disobeying what John is teaching these early Christians to do. It would be lending credibility in the eyes of people in that Muslim context to Muslim worship. It would be communicating to others that it's perfectly fine to go on in this way that is contrary to what God has revealed in his holy word. That's not loving. That's patently unloving. In our world, in our context, what we will more likely encounter and what I suggest that many of you or suspect that many of you have already encountered will have to do with what our culture says and embraces concerning gender and marriage and sexuality. Our culture would teach us that we need to accept all kinds of behaviors and lifestyles that are clearly contrary to God's word and are clearly sinful. And if we don't, then we are unloving. They will put pressure on us, calling for us to capitulate to them. We even see in our communities that there are many who call themselves churches. There are many who bear the name of Christ on their boards and on their signs. And yet, they embrace and celebrate that which is clearly contrary to God's word. This doesn't make sense. This is not right. And we must not have anything to do with that kind of thing. We can have no fellowship, no partnership with that kind of, uh, that kind of congregation. But with those who may simply be a little different than us on secondary matters, but yet embrace the same gospel, hold forth the same Christ, Hold forth the same truth concerning God's person, God's nature, that is, and Christ's person and his work. Even if we differ on substantial matters, like how to conduct baptism, or how we expect Christ to return. Not that we expect Christ's return, but how it will play out. That's not what John is speaking about. He's speaking about those first order things that differentiate Christianity from that which is not Christianity. In the early 1900s, J. Gresham Machen recognized this distinction when he wrote the book Christianity and Liberalism, and the title says it all. He was writing against what was common in his day and continues in our day. Many mainline denominations, called mainline Christian denominations, began denying things like the resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, cardinal truths of the Christian faith, and Machen's simple argument was, it may be a religion, but it's not Christianity. He called it liberalism. Call it what you will. It may use the same language, the same terminology. It's not the same thing. That's the kind of thing that we see all the way back in John's day. John would tell us, have nothing to do with it. It is an expression of love, as I've said. Why? Because of what is at stake. Again, let me read it to you. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. What is at stake is the eternal fate of men and women. But everyone who abides in the teaching, who remains in it, has both the Father and the Son. They're the two people that are placed in contrast. And we are to hold fast, not to go into uncharted territory that is beyond what Christ has revealed to us through himself and through his word. We are to remain steadfast in what we have received and what we have seen, what we have heard from his word. There is no greater expression of love than this, to hold forth the truth in the midst of a world that would pressure us to abandon it. For that is what people most need. It remains true what Jesus said in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He is not one way among many ways. He is the way. He is not one truth among many truths. He is the truth. He is not one way for life among many. He is the life. And no one can gain access to our Lord except through him. We must communicate that with clarity in both our words and our actions. And that means we must be very clear in terms of our associations and how we respond to others who deny and reject and would work against that very clear confession.
Now, let me conclude, not with a word of warning, but with a word of encouragement. For that's how John concludes this letter. He concludes this letter by saying, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And here we see echoes of John's first letter once more, where he invited the people that he, to whom he wrote into fellowship with him through Christ so that, his, so that our joy might be complete. John longs for the completeness of that joy when he can see these Christians face to face. And here what we see very clearly is that we are called into fellowship with one another even as we are invited to fellowship with our triune God. And that should encourage us as we think of the world around us and the way in which we'll be rejected for embracing the truth that God has revealed. For as we hold that truth and love are inseparable and necessary in our lives and as we remain committed to that reality, committed to our faith in love, we will not receive the love of the world, but we do have one another. We do have this joyful fellowship, this wonderful fellowship, when we can gather face to face and we can speak with one another and we can encourage one another. And even when, when from afar, we can greet one another and send our love and our encouragement and our affection to one another. Because our love is in the truth of what Christ has done for us and what we will have now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would unite us in truth and love. That we would not merely be characterized by commitment to the truth. But that in our commitment to the truth, we might also love one another that our love for you might flow forth in that kind of love that is sacrificial, that is giving, that is generous, that is selfless, that is humble. And Father, I know that these can be hard things to contemplate because they can be very real and practical in our lives. I pray that in all of our lives as we are faced with these challenges, which are not merely academic, but can be can lead to very real hurt, very real consequences, very real separation. I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to keep what you have taught us, to obey what Christ has commanded us, knowing and believing that indeed it is for our good and it is a demonstration of love to others. These things we pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.